The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that we can um, come before you, Lord, recognizing that you are great. And Lord, that a lowly and weak people like us can call you Father and can come and worship in in such a way. So Father, as we uh, look into your word this morning, um, would you reveal yourself, perhaps in a new way, or Lord, perhaps in a very old way that we need to be encouraged by? Would you use this passage, Lord, to increase our faith and to show us that you are the faithful God? So, Lord, speak. Would you work in our hearts and encourage us in the faith? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a need and call in the church and, and society for biblical, God-fearing men to step up and lead. Historically, there's a toxic masculinity that's run rampant and needs to be checked. Increasingly, there's a passive masculinity that needs to be rejected. Embedded in all of this, there's a need to see young men raised up strong and compassionate. There's a significant part of me that resonates with this kind of thinking and mantra. I want to be challenged. I want to rise to the occasion when duty calls. In fact, I believe that it's in God's original design that he created men unique in the role to provide and protect of what is good and right. And I hear this call to a faithful following of God, and, and my heart is willing, desiring Though I hear this call, my experience of fulfilling it feels far different. At every corner, I'm faced with my own weakness, my own inability, my inability to lead my family well, my inability to help lead this church. I even feel that I lack the ability or discipline to lead my own soul in the ways that I desire to follow God. The call to faithfulness feels weighty and at times impossible. And if I'm going to be really honest, my faith often feels very weak and flighty. Whatever the call is on our lives, and I'm using biblical masculinity as as a relevant one for myself, we often fall short and can regularly doubt or question what a life of faith is looks like. It causes me to wonder at times, do I correctly understand and live in the right view of God, the right practice of faith and what he's called me to do? Am I resting in a faithful God or am I approaching faith in a manner that is dependent upon me to muster up something on my own as if faith depends on me? The book of Hebrews is ultimately a book about faith. 
And it's written to encourage Christians who are likely experiencing trials, both at the hands of, of Judaism and a hostile Roman Empire. And in that, there's a temptation for the church to drift away from the message of Jesus embodied in the gospel and the call for them to gather into corporate identity and a corporate gathering in his name. For some of them, it would be uh, socially and politically easier to retreat to the Jewish faith, to their background, which would be less under the watchful eye of the Romans. For others, they may have been tempted to drift towards a secular understanding of God, a polytheism that relativizes the claim that there is one way to God, and instead claiming there are multiple gods and multiple ways and multiple realities. The story from the beginning of the Bible has been about faith. Do we believe God and what he says, or do we think that we know better? So this morning, we're going to look at a topic as old as mankind, yet still as relevant as ever. Through the text of Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we're going to look at the problem of faith, the grounds of faith, and the call to faith. And this was a passage that I felt, uh, I thought fitting for us that would be more balanced towards men in the room. It's applicable to us all, but there's especially a call for us men as we lead and trust God in faith and set that tone for our families, for the church, for our community. So here's, here's the passage, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the word of the Lord. So first, we're going to look at the problem of faith. So the first word we see in this passage starts off with, therefore. And as a student of the Bible, we need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore. And as we go back, we see we've just dropped into Hebrews 10, and there's a potential for misunderstanding the significance of a verse like this due to a couple reasons. One, there's a context of Hebrews that an argument has been made, and here's a point that he's saying, therefore. So we need to understand something about what's being said in Hebrews. But there's also a context or an opportunity for misunderstanding because of the context of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews draws heavily from the Old Testament and, and what God is doing in and through his people throughout time. So with that, what I want to do for a few moments is back up and fill in some biblical context that leads up to this verse and helps us understand the problem of faith so that then we can later move on to the grounds of faith and the call of faith. 
So here we see two things put before us. We see that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and we see something about the significance of a great priest. And so the two primary questions are, what is the significance of being able to enter the holy places? And the second question is, what is the role of a priest? And why is this great priest great? So as we go back and, and go, go back to the Old Testament, through the line and offspring of Abraham, God promised to make for himself a people, the, well, who we would know as the Israelites. He made and gathered the Israelites through Abraham and he promised to provide them a land where they can flourish, where he can be their God and they can be his people. As time goes on, the Israelites end up becoming enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to deliver them as they continue in this movement towards this promised land that he's going to give them. Through Moses, God provided his people a law to help keep them in right relationship with himself. And a part of this law was the constructing of a tabernacle, which is more or less like a robust mobile tent. The tabernacle was to be representative of God's presence with his people when they were wandering about in the wilderness. And then the tabernacle is what would later become permanently fixed as the temple in the city of Jerusalem in God's, with God's people in God's city. Within the tabernacle or the temple, there were a series of rooms that increasingly became holy or sacred as you got to the innermost room. And the innermost room was called the Holy of Holies. And it's where the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the, ten, the tablets, the Ten Commandments um, that God gave to Moses on the mountain, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And the Holy of Holies could only be accessed at certain times by the high priest and after sacrificial purification for himself and the people of Israel. And in the temple, as one would approach the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain or a veil, which we heard James read of earlier, that separated this room from, uh, and, and was a barrier so that no one could, could pass that, except for the high priest in certain times and ways. And so for one to enter the Holy of Holies in an inappropriate manner would be a death sentence. It would be to disregard the holy God and to come on his presence in an inappropriate way. And so the point of all this is that there is a separation between God and his people. And we see that, and we see this through the wilderness and we see this with the temple that God, he is with them. He is pleased to identify with his people. He's for them. He's fighting their battles. He's walking alongside them to bring them about in relationship with him. But mankind is cut off from personal relationship with him because of their sin and guilt. And it was only through sacrifices, the death of animals, that man could keep right relationship with God and right favor with him. This is not the way that God intended it to be. And in fact, as we think back to the Garden of Eden, the place where, where uh, God originally created and placed Adam and Eve, we can think about the Garden of Eden as a form of temple. 
It was a place where God was pleased to live face to face with his people in their presence, in right relationship. It's where God dwelled among mankind. And in a way, Adam and Eve served as priests in that temple, working and keeping it, serving and protecting the garden as image bearers, and doing so freely in his presence, enjoying relationship with him. So we get this idea of a garden, a garden scene that then when we come to the temple, the imagery, the different things that were, the decorations that were in the temple were of a garden scene. So in our mind, we should draw a link between the garden and the temple and God's presence and the role of priests in that. But sadly, things turn in the garden when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequence for this action was the imminent reality of death. And a further consequence was that Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden, saying that they were cut off from the tree of life. And God places a cherubim, which is an angelic creature with a flaming sword, to guard the tree of life, to guard the way to the garden, which is preventing mankind to enter back into the presence of God of personal relationship in the way that he intended it. Adam and Eve and all mankind were cut off from the holy place where God was pleased to dwell with man. How did this come about? Adam and Eve didn't believe God at his word. In a moment, they lacked faith. And this made death and separation from God a reality. And in that fall, mankind was given over to a corrupted, a corrupted heart, a corrupted mind, a corrupted will. And their lack of faith begat a lack of faith in subsequent generations. The holy and awesome creator of the universe was out of reach, inaccessible, unapproachable by sinful man. And here enters the need for forgiveness of sins. Here enters the need for a new heart that believes God at his word and obeys his commands. And in that Genesis Genesis 3 passage, we're given a promise of God who will raise up one day an offspring who will come and conquer death, who will restore man to God. So that is the problem of faith. So now let's move on and look at the grounds of faith. So the passage says, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So in order to resolve the problem, we are in need of a great high priest who can enter into the holy places and offer a sacrifice once and for all. And the work and the person of Jesus is the answer to the problem of faith. It's the answer to the one, he is the one who becomes our grounds for faith. And so in this, this Hebrew passage highlights and brings up the work and the person of Christ. So we see, we look at the work of of Christ. So 
just prior to God delivering the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt. He spoke with Moses to instruct all of Israel to sacrifice a lamb and use the blood of that lamb to paint it on the doorposts of each Israelite home. And there was a call for each Israelite to believe and to have faith in this command that God would give them. And if they acted on it, the angel of death would pass over their home and not strike down their oldest son. If they didn't do that, God, the angel of death would pass over and strike down, would strike down the oldest son. But in this, we see that it was by the blood of a lamb that Israel would be saved and delivered out of Egypt, that they would be delivered to the promised land where God would dwell with them. This passing over in Egypt was but a shadow of what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. So here in our passage, we see that it says, it is by the blood of Jesus that we have been granted access to enter the holy places. And it is by his blood that we have been provided forgiveness of sins, that the judgment and wrath of God passes over us and is instead inflicted on Jesus himself. It is by Jesus' blood that a new and living way that he opened through the curtain by his flesh. So we see that there's a way that's been opened through the curtain. Upon the moment of the death of Jesus, there's a curtain in the temple that is literally physically torn. The temple in Jerusalem, it's ripped from top to bottom. This is an act of God to show that Jesus' death, his sacrifice, was a permanent reality that gained access back to the holy God. This curtain had previously separated man from God, but through the tearing of the curtain, we see that there must be a tearing of the sun, a, a crushing of the sun, so that someone so that one could gain access. This way has been opened up, and this way is new and living. It's new because prior to this historical moment, there was access to God, no access to God. And it's living because Christ did not stay dead. Christ Christ raised again and went and was seated at the right hand of God forever to intercede for those who are his by faith. And earlier in Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says this of Christ's work. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. That's the work of Jesus, the great priest. And only Jesus, who is the priest, can enter into the Holy of Holies and offer that sacrifice. So we see something about his work, but what what does it tell us about him as a person? 
What made Jesus qualified to do this? Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, the Son of God, the second Adam, the holy, innocent, unstained, eternal priest, is the only one who can offer a perfect sacrifice. God himself condescended earth, took on flesh so that he might forever grant confident access to his people. He is the great priest who can enter into the holy places and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. Thus giving access to God as, uh, to us as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So as we see the work of Christ and then his character, we see the, the Hebrews passages encourage, passage encourages us that we can have confidence through Christ's work, we can have confidence to enter the holy places by his blood. The grounds of our faith all rest upon the person and work of Jesus. He alone is our confidence. All of history and biblical history is written in a way that the primary aim is to highlight Jesus Christ the Savior. All of scripture anticipates him as the answer and the only answer to the world's problems, to our problem of separation from God. And through Christ, we've been guaranteed access through his death and resurrection. And so this, this leads us to the third part that we want to talk about, the call to faith. And I think this is where this gets real and personal for us. And so it's important to start with the problem, with the problem. And then from there, it's important to talk about the grounds in which we can come back before God. But for most of us in the room, the call to faith, the reality of faith, the application of faith is where this gets difficult. And here, I think this is the, the main part of this passage. And really, this is a central part in this whole book that is meant to encourage us in how we are to respond in faith. And here there are uh, three, three different verbs or three different ideas that express this call to faith. You see, the first one is this idea of, of let us draw near. The second is let us hold fast. And then the third is let us consider. And you'll notice as we go through these, there's the common triad of faith, hope, and then love. And so we'll, we'll see how those build on one another as we go forward. So the call to faith. So the first, the first action, the first encouragement, the first call comes in verse 22. So considering this great priest, since then we have this great priest, says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
So let us draw near. So how are we to draw near? Well, we're to draw near with a true heart. True is in genuine, pure, right. A heart, the heart is the central core identity and the desires of a person. And so we're to come honestly, truthfully, with a right heart before God. We're to also draw near with a full assurance of faith. And this is not just a blind faith, but this is a faith that is to rest upon something that is reliable, that is sturdy, that is trustworthy. So a a question that a a mentor of mine in college once asked me is, what's more important, the faith itself or the object of the faith, or the object of your faith? And as a, young, as a young man, my mind spun around that question because on one hand, it's essential that we have faith. And especially if we're raised in the church, that's something that it's like, got to have faith. <laughs> faith is important, right? But in that, when we get to the question, what's more important, the answer is going to be the object of our faith. And in recent weeks, um, uh, Pastor Steve's made a few references to this idea of a chair. That when you come across to a chair, no matter how much faith I have that that chair will hold me, and no matter how much faith I can conjure up and put in that chair, if I sit down and the chair doesn't hold, what is of my faith? <laughs> Nothing, right? The faith was useless. It didn't serve its purpose. But as we come to that chair and we observe it, we look at it, it seems sturdy, and then we sit down and rest on it, the quality of the faith is determined by the quality of the object that we sit and rest in. Faith is relative to the object that one places their faith in. Faith itself is useless unless the object of one's faith is reliable. So full assurance isn't dependent upon us trying to muster up some kind of belief that's unnatural to us. No, full assurance, we we arrive at full assurance as we look to God and remember what he has done through the life of Christ and through the message of the gospel and that God through all of history has proven himself over and over and over again and in the life of the Christian that he proves himself over and over again. So full assurance is dependent on the quality of the object of our faith, not just that we've got something that we think we believe is true. We arrive at full assurance as we look to God and remember what he's done. So uh, there are, well, one, one way that sometimes we wrongly draw near to God. One way um, that perhaps we don't come near, draw near to him in faith is uh, we draw near to God based on our own works. And so this is something that uh, was revealed early on in my Christian life. I grew up in a Christian home, went away to college, got involved with ministry, And in my ministry involvement, there were some good things that God was doing. One, there was a heart that longed for God, 
what, which was really not existent in my childhood. Um, I started reading the Bible for the first time. I started looking at some hard realities in the, in the Bible and was challenged by those and, ha- and I had to work through them. So th- those were some good things that were happening. But underneath all of that, I think I had an unhealthy view of the gospel, an unhealthy view of the role of faith. And what I mean by that is I thought as a young Christian that there were things I had to do to be acceptable, to be pleasing to God. And so it was in that that I was kind of sucked into this path that I needed to become a missionary, and that was the greatest possible way to please God. Or I needed to become a minister of, of, or a pastor, and that was the greatest way that I could please God. And in that, though all the actions and everything that's happening around from a cultural outside-in looking perspective seemed good, the heart, the reliance, the dependent, I was dependent on myself. I was dependent on what I was doing to uh, be pleasing to God. And so, as we come to this idea of faith, we need to ask, how was someone saved through faith? And we have this age-old phrase, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And this helps point us to the fact that there is nothing we bring to the table here. Nothing. Many of us believe that at the initial point of salvation, that there's, there's nothing to do, that God saves us. But then we go on and live as if our salvation or God's pleasure is dependent upon our works. That God's pleasure is dependent upon how fruitful life we have. It's dependent on what we do or don't do for God. And it was early on by God's grace that I was saved from this kind of faith. It was a faith that left me working, that left me tired, that left me stressed and anxious. Not a faith that, left it, that brought about rest. So this, this kind of belief that we can contribute something, that we can draw near to God based on our own works is false. God's delight in man comes from the full assurance of faith that a true, as a true heart regularly and humbly recognizes their need for a savior. God's delight comes with a heart that desires and longs to delight in God. And this is, this is the path of the Christian life. Recently in one of our, in our, in our life group that we we're a part of, we we're going through a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And a quote and a point that came from this material was super helpful for me as I was thinking about this week. It says this, the gospel is not just the entrance point to the kingdom of God, but the gospel is so much more. It's not just the door, but the path we are to walk every day of the Christian life. The gospel is not just the means of our salvation, but the means of our transformation. And so when we come to the idea of faith, faith is both the entrance, that's how we are made right with God through faith, but also faith is the path. 
Faith is the means by, as we believe God at his word and walk with him, that he transforms us. And Jesus is the only one who can cleanse our hearts from an evil, straying conscience. And how, how much of this is the Christian life, that we are saved and we are secure, but then, like Pilgrim's Progress, we continue to wander off the path. We continue to hear the lures, the temptations of the world, to realize that our faith in and of ourselves is not sturdy, it's not reliable, and that we don't have the strength to go on on our own. But in the end, it's only Jesus who can cleanse us, who can transform us as we continue to return to him in faith. And that's why I love these words, let us draw near. That is the repetition of a Christian's life. Let us continue to draw near over and over again. Knowing what Christ has established for us, that he has torn down the curtain and made a way back to God, and that's done and set for eternity. And as we remember that, there is an incredible rest that we know that we have a good and faithful God who receives us over and over again amidst our failure and inability. And actually, that's how he makes us strong, is we come to rely on a good and strong Savior. So that's the first the first command or the first encouragement, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. The second command here is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Though many of us continue to draw near to God in faith, the reality is that many of us drift and we place our hope in temporary things rather than the eternal word of God. So we see, hold fast to the confession of our hope. If we understand the true nature of our problem before God, then there's only one confession of hope, and that is Christ and his work. And if we forget that, there are many, many things that can cause a wavering of faith, a wavering of our hope. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope, which is in the gospel, without wavering. If you think about Adam and Eve, they wavered when they believed the lie that they could become like God. And you see all the lures of that that said the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise. The wavering came at them from all angles. <laughs> the fruit physically looked good. It was, going to phys- it was going to fill them and be tasty and enjoyed on one level. It was alluring to the eye. It was going to make them wise. It was going to offer them something that they didn't have. And this, this is our same human fragile state that we are so easily... We so easily waver as we look at the things around us. Our heart wavers as we make the experiences of life ultimate. So that could be food, sex, careers, marriage, children, grandchildren. In these things, as we make them ultimate, our heart can waver 
if we look to those things to, to fill us, we make them our hope as if they will bring everlasting joy. Our heart wavers as we hold fast to the cares of the world. We live in a world where you don't want to be on the outside. There's a lot of social pressure to go along and to be on the in crowd and the in way of thinking. And if you don't, there's consequences. There's, you might be ostracized. You might be pushed to the edge of, edge of society. And here our heart wavers as we are attracted and pulled one way or another. Also, our, our heart may waver and holds fast uh, as long as things are going well or until things get hard. And it's true that maybe some of us are earlier in the faith and, and life is great and exciting, but then as, as soon as something hard comes along the way, the hope of the confession falls to the background and the, the reality and the needs of the moment come up, come up, spring up and are what draw, draw our attention and, and cause us to waver. The only way to fight off this kind of wavering is to fix our heart on a greater desire. And the greater desire is this confession of hope that Christ has secured for us that once we were cut off and alienated from God, but now, through the work of Christ, we are restored to him as sons and daughters. And that is the most important reality of our hope that changes everything as we can sit in that. This idea of holding fast, it's an active action, not a passive one. So how, how in our life do we continue to actively hold on to hold fast to the confession of our hope? What kinds of things are we doing to remind ourselves of what, who God is and what he's done for us? But in all this, I think one of the best parts of this passage is this phrase, for he who promised is faithful. This is encouraging because God has made a promise that he cannot break. And God cannot break a promise because of who he is and his nature. He is true, faithful, reliable. He himself is unwavering. So as we begin to feel ourselves waver, what we need to do is we need to draw near to God and hold fast to the unwavering God of the universe who holds on to us. Our faith and our hope are not dependent upon us and what we do, but upon the one that we hope in. So if, if you find yourself being let down by the things of the world, it's time to get a better hope. The promises of a faithful, unwavering God, that is our hope. Lastly here, verse 24, the third encouragement. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see that we are called to draw near an assurance of faith. We're called to 
to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And now he calls us to consider how to stir up one another in love. So as we have faith, that leads to hope. And as we have hope anchoring us, then that leads to love. So as we consider, we see that uh, this idea of consider is, is an intentionality. It's, it's that we would notice, that we would look attentively, that we, we would be active to consider how it is we can stir up one another to love and good works. And this idea of stir up is kind of a, a provocative way to say, it's like to provoke, to incite. And so you, you can think about this. Often you have someone who might be uh, stirring up or provoking division, right? But here we flip it in the positive that we're to actively be kind of meddling in each other's lives to provoke and stir up love and good works. This is not a passive thing, but this is, this is an active thing that comes from the motivation of love. And I find it interesting here, how, how are we to do this? What is the best way to stir one another up in love and good works? He says, by not neglecting to meet together. How has COVID challenged this in the past three years? I say this not to poke at individuals that may or may not have a good reason for meeting, but I say it more to recognize that some of us more easily than others took the bait of an out. We took the bait of an excuse to not gather, neglecting this command from Scripture. And I think we, we need to check our own heart, our own motivation here. Because as we think about this action of, of love and how we are to walk in, in faith, it's interesting that it's included here and that faith and the gathering of God's people are intimately woven into each other. The work of the great priest necessitates gathering as the primary means for us to grow in love. And so I think there, there's a, a tendency here that, or there, there's, there's a thought that Sunday morning is not enough to do this. And so the question is, is if we are walking in faith, when you come to church or when you intentionally gather with your brothers and sisters during the week, how can you encourage them? How can you come alongside them? How might you showing up actually be an encouragement to you? And we've got to recognize that apart from the assembling of God's people, so if we, if we neglect this, that we're going to be prone uh, to a stirring up of, of things that are not going to be helpful and beneficial to us. To neglect the, the gathering of the saints would leave us prone and vulnerable to stir up passions and desires that promote our, self, our own self-interest. To neglect the, the gathering of the saints would be potentially to stir up divisions and controversy that end up tearing down. 
So there's a call to move towards one another, to love each other. And this is the natural, this is the natural byproduct of faith playing itself out. And what Christ, through his priestly work, has secured for us. The end goal is love and good works. That's what it means for us to be an image bearer. So to neglect the gathering of the saints is to do a poor job of image bearing is essentially what this comes down to. So let us hear that, draw near God to faith, hope in the confession, and move towards one another, encourage each other. And why is this important? And it comes to this last phrase here, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One day Jesus is returning, meaning his return is imminent. Today we are one day closer to his return than we were yesterday. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Two realities. After death comes judgment. Man will die once. We will all die So we, we, need to, we need to face that reality. But on the other side of that, Christ will return to save those who eagerly wait for him. So the role of faith is that we need to regularly encourage one another as the day draws near. This is the most true and certain reality. God promised to send an offspring to deal with death and the devil, and that happened. We've seen him. He lives in the presence of the Father now. But similarly, Jesus has promised to return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That has not happened yet. And when God makes a promise, it's a done deal. And so until Christ returns, until that day comes, we are to encourage one another in faith. And I think the only way that we can fulfill our different vocations and callings is ultimately through the faith, is through faith in a faithful God in the context of the church. So as you look at your own life, where do you need to be encouraged in your faith this morning? How can you be an encouragement to another? Do you need to be encouraged to draw near to God? Do you need to be encouraged to hold fast to the confession of your hope? Do you need to be encouraged to actually move towards others in love and good works? As the world continues to churn and tumult, let us remember the call of faith, the call to faith, and the faithful God. Let us rest daily, moment by moment, in the grace that he's provided through our great priest and continue in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for offering us such a great priest. Lord, thank you for tearing down the curtain, the separation, Lord, that has kept us from walking in relationship with you. 
Lord, this morning, perhaps many of us feel that we have a, a weakened faith. Lord, would you fix our eyes upon you and your faithfulness? Would you fix our eyes upon you and your promises? Lord, to have an assurance of faith, Lord, to know that you have got us and, Lord, that you are an object of faith that will not let us down, that will not let us fall, Lord. Lord, help us to encourage each other in this. And Lord, help us to do this together as a church. Would you put that reality on our heart and mind, Lord, that we need you, but Lord, you have made it so that we need one another to be encouraged to love and good works. And would you do this, Lord, to your glory and for our great joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.